Hey, I want to um, yeah, just say hi and uh, tell you we're going to get into God's Word here this morning. And what we started several weeks ago was a series, kind of like a sub-series in the larger series that we've been going through, which is the book of Revelation. And uh, when we hit chapter 12, chapter 13, these were two chapters that primarily dealt with uh, a larger theme of demonic spiritual activity, spiritual warfare type of things that were going on. Uh, as depicted by the dragon uh, in chapter 12, and then later on in that chapter talking about how the dragon was conquered uh, by the blood of the lamb, or Jesus is the one that ends up conquering. We've been trying to use this phrase, that Jesus is the dragon slayer. We've been taking a look at this larger theme of spiritual warfare. In some ways, I kind of liken it to it like this. When we've been going through the book of Revelation, we got to chapter 12, it's almost like we loaded a spaceship and we blasted off from chapter 12. And we've been kind of in orbit now. And um, over the next two weeks, we're going to start circling around. We're going to make our way back into the book of Revelation and then keep going through it. Um, so we actually have about two more weeks left in this series of looking at spiritual demonic activity, spiritual demonic warfare. Um, what we've been looking at up until this particular point are devices that the dragon uses. And that word actually comes from uh, Paul's writing, Paul the Apostle. When he says, we don't want to be ignorant of the devices of the devil. In other words, his whole point is that we want to be aware. We want to know what are some of the devices by which the dragon or the devil works or operates to trip us up, to bring us down, to bring about destruction. For some of you, if you're not a Christian here, he, his part of his device is to keep you blind to the truth, to keep you bound, to keep you outside of relationship with God. If you are a Christian... The devices that Satan sometimes may use in your life are things like bitterness. He tries to get you to be bitter. tries to get you to act in relationships with other people where there's just constant senses of uh, unforgiveness going on and you're angry. You have malice and bitterness and criticism and judgment in your heart towards other people. Some of you might not be like overt type sinful activity. Some of you might be you're super righteous. You're just the perfect Christian. You read your Bible all the time. You have a very good, solid, tight, uh, disciplined spiritual life. And you know it. And you're arrogant. You're prideful. That's a trait of the dragon. He's arrogant. He's prideful. He's autonomous. If that's you, if that's the way you view, either you're on the extreme of sin or they're on the extreme of self-righteousness, they're all devices of the dragon to get us to fall. To get us to be either driven away by despair from Christ or to be driven away from our need for Christ because we see ourselves as being so great. Why do we need Jesus? I pray so much. I mean, of course God will accept me. Of course God will love me because I'm so devoted to, you know, his ways. And they're all ploys on the dragon's behalf to, to deceive us. To destroy us. So what we're going to be taking a look at today and next week are not so much devices anymore. If you have not been here over the past few weeks, I would uh, encourage you to go to our website to download the messages, calvaryslow.com, and uh, listen to them. They're always for free, and hopefully they'll be a blessing to you guys. Um, what we're going to be focusing on today are not so much devices, but more so remedies. We're going to be taking a look at some of the remedies that God sets in place to aid us, to help us, so that we don't fall, so that we can basically grow and mature. And rather, rather than finding ourselves constantly being tripped up by these devices, instead we can grow. 
rather than letting darkness continue to sort of uh, settle upon us, upon our souls, upon our lives, instead we can push back the darkness and move forward God's kingdom the way God wants us to live. That's what we're really going to be trying to look at here today. So with that being said, I'm actually going to pray, and then we'll get to work on this really larger theme um, of some of the remedies that the Bible basically outlines for us to help us to mature and grow in our walk with Christ, but also at the same time uh, in helping us to defeat the devices of the dragon, our adversary, the devil. Let's pray. Father, we ask you right now that you would help us. God, we need your help. Your word, uh, God, is what is a light to our path. It's, it, it provides illumination for us as we uh, move. And God, we pray as well that you would help us to not just simply uh, learn spiritual truths, but God, that these truths would transform us. They would transform the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we fight, the way that we have warfare against these demonic forces. God, we confess that we are so easily deceived, that even sometimes when we think we're doing so great, is oftentimes just the ploy of the enemy to keep us arrogant and prideful. So we pray, Father, for your help, pray for your assistance and your strength and humility, God, to be able to, uh, to receive the things that your word has to say to us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Over the next two weeks, we're going to basically be looking at three items, three main remedies. Um, I thought about trying to do all of them today, but then I thought, you know, I'm going to be, I'd be having to sort of augment a handful of them. I don't want to augment any of them. I don't want to abbreviate any of them. I want to just sort of uh, look at them as much as we can to let them just have the weight that the scripture holds for us. Um, And I was trying to figure out what would be the best order by which to present these things. The one that we're going to be looking at today, originally I was going to be looking at this last my thought was like, let's save the best for last. But then I thought, in reality, what we're going to be taking a look at today is foundational. It, it, everything else builds upon today in terms of remedy. If you want a remedy to fight against uh, the forces of darkness, if you want a remedy to be able to push back uh, Satan's devices in your life, to not only identify those devices, but to be able to counteract those devices, everything is going to build upon today. Uh, one last thing I want to say before I jump in this is, uh, to be quite frank with you guys, uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this in the way in which I'm trying to present these things is not as some guy who's got it all figured out and here's directly uh, pages from my journal and I'm just preaching them to you. That's not it. To be quite frank with you, I stumble in the same way as I'm preaching in all these things. Everything I'm talking about, most of which... I stumble with, I fall under, and what I'm trying to say is the remedies that we're going to be taking a look at are things that I use practically in my life to help me, to strengthen me, so that I am able, by God's grace, to be pulled out of these devices, these traps, these snares of the dragon, so that I can keep moving forward. Um, And so, again, I, I look at it this way. I'm I'm just a journeyman with you guys, with you guys. I'm one of you, one with you, and this is not preaching, me preaching to you. This is really just as a journeyman saying, look, let's try to understand what God has to say. Let's try to look at what the scriptures teach us and declare to us so that we can understand them, so that we can grow, so that we can, as a church, move forward and push back darkness. Uh, Let me just say this one last thing. Um... You know, last week was awesome. It was amazing. We had all three of our services together. All the students were in town. Um, a lot of people invited people. There were hundreds and hundreds 
and hundreds of people last week. It was crazy. Like James says, if, you know, earlier, that if we would knew at all, you know, what was going to happen that day, it would have been chaotic. I, I, don't, I, I was nervous already as it was going up there. I never get nervous when I preach. I was totally nervous. I was like shaking, all right? I got off the stage. I was shaking. I forgot stuff. And I normally never do that. And I normally don't ever have any problem just talking. That's my wife and my kids. And what I'm trying to say is this, is that as awesome as that is, as energetic and energizing as things like that are, to be quite frank, we all have to hit the ground running at some point. And it's great to have a lot of people, get at a lot of people, it's energizing and all that. But the reality is this, is I don't really care how big something gets or how many people come to something. What I really care about is for God's people to push back darkness. It's not about God's people congregating, having a big church service. It's about the impact and the effect and the effectiveness of God's people moving forth into the community, into the world, bringing light and exposing darkness, driving back the darkness. And to be quite frank with you, that begins not out there. It begins here. It begins individually in our hearts where we identify darkness, where we identify devices of the dragon so that we can call them what they are, sin, sinful proclivities, demonic devices, so we can call them what they are, confess them, push back the darkness in ourselves, and so that when we go back out into the world as missionaries, that we are having an impact on San Luis Obispo, not by, oh, the group that, you know, filled up the humongous building up by Madonna. I don't care about that. What I care about is for us as a church pushing back darkness in the community, pushing back darkness in the lives of people that are living in darkness. That's really what's most essential uh, for us as a church, all right? And again, it begins first and foremost by us identifying the devices of the dragon in ourselves, among us, identifying the remedies, applying the remedies, and then moving forward. That make sense? Okay, I want to begin uh, reading a quote. Uh, I read this a couple days ago from a magazine called Table Talk. I love the quote. I want to read it to you. I think it's really insightful. Here's what it says. The devil, we ought also to remember. Now, let me say this. Uh, he's writing this kind of tongue-in-cheek. He, he used sarcasm, so you'll notice that he's not writing it as, you'll get it, you'll get it. He says, the devil, we ought also to remember, is not only arrayed in the political and cultural battlefields. He does not have his hand in the Democratic National Committee only, nor does he work his magic only in Hollywood. And this is where, this is where the whole sentence get really, gets really poignant. Listen to what he says. He's at work when we're filled with envy, malice, fear, selfishness. He's waging war when he encourages us to spend our energies not pursuing God's kingdom, but pursuing personal peace and affluence. He's practicing his dark magic when he encourages us to not honor Christ, but rather our own reputation and dignity. He's at work in the details of our lives, how we speak to our children, how we listen to our spouse, and sadly, he's winning great victories. It's pretty insightful, isn't it? Because it's really easy for us to, you know, you know, sit down and ask most people here, like, okay, identify demonic forces. We can all be like, oh, I saw this movie last night. It was horrible. Or, you know, I, I was up in San Francisco and I saw lots of demonic activity. Or, you know, I, I mean, we can, we can, we're really good at identifying, like, the big things. But when was the last time you sat down and talked to somebody and be like, you know what? I'll show you some really deep, dark, demonic stuff. 
I have this insatiable lust for gadgets. I love things other than God. Or here's another one. I hate my father-in-law. I hate him with deep malice and anger. I wish he died. When was the last time we looked at that and said, saw that as demonic as the porn industry? Or as demonic as child trafficking? Or as demonic as scores, hundreds and thousands of kids being deprived from food because of some stupid despot in some foreign country? When was the last time we looked at demonic activity in our own lives in the same way as we're really quick to identify it in anything else? This is how deep the darkness is. You understand what I'm saying? It's deep, it's thick, it's dark, and it's very convincing that it's out there and not in here. That's how deep the darkness is. You ready? Ready to look at some remedies? <laughs> You're like, whoa, this is gnarly stuff. I know, I know. This is how deep it is. All right, first thing that we're going to take a look at. The first remedy, we're going to look at three. I'll, I'll tell you what the other two are, uh, just so you can kind of have a, have a heads up. Next week, uh, the first remedy is this, is we'll take a look at Jesus is the dragon slayer. That's the first one we'll look at. Second remedy is living in biblical community. We'll talk more about that. It'll be very practical. Uh, the third one we'll take a look at right after living in biblical community is living according to our new nature. This is when we'll take a look at all the verses that most of us are thinking about. Like, oh, is he going to get to Ephesians? Whole armor of God? Uh, next week. Yeah. But all that builds upon this most important one, okay? Uh, everything builds upon this very first and foremost um, remedy to the demonic forces and activities that, that are at work. Again, if we are honestly humble enough and true enough to identify the wickedness in here, as quickly as we are able to identify it out there, then we'll be able to understand how great the remedy uh, that we're going to be taking a look at first and foremost. And the first one is this, uh, that Jesus is the dragon slayer. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says this. I want to read this to you. Jesus, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And verse 11 is where everything sort of comes to crystal clarity. He says this, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb. So the picture is this. You have the accuser, which is the dragon, Satan himself, the, the, the devil. And it says that he was conquered uh, by the blood of the lamb. It's very important to understand this. Now, one thing that we have to kind of understand is that when we read our Bibles oftentimes, it's very distinct from the way first century people would have read their Bibles. Uh, we read our Bibles, we've, everything's broken down in chapter and verse. Maybe you have a little devotional, and you're like, I'll read two chapters a day. And you read two chapters, and the moment you start Revelation, you know, you're, you're not even to chapter 12 until like six weeks into it, all right? Uh, or, you know, six days or so into it. So the reality is, is that by the time you get to chapter 12, you've already forgotten most of the stuff that had already gone previously. But if you read it like a first century person would, you'd read it in one big setting. And one of the things that you would notice is that when you came across the word in chapter 12, verse 10, or 11, verse 11, it says, and they conquered him by the blood, by the blood of the lamb, or the lamb that was slain. That word, again, I've used this language before. If you're new here, it's going to be maybe unfamiliar to you. If you've been here before, it's totally familiar to you. John writes in hyperlinks. In other words, he uses little phrases 
that sort of attach to other key concepts and phrases. So uh, again, sitting down, maybe in someone's living room, reading this first century, and you get to chapter 12, and you read this little passage here, it says, and the accuser of the brethren was conquered by the blood of the lamb. It would immediately take you back to Revelation chapter 5. So why don't you turn back there real quick, and I'll show you exactly what I mean. Revelation chapter 5 is sort of the story when John uh, was taken up into heaven. He sees this vision. Uh, he sees the throne, around the throne, or uh, centered around the throne. God is at the center of the entire throne. And what he begins to notice is, um, he sees a scroll in God's hands. And uh, I think the scroll probably is some sort of like a title deed to the earth, or some sort of right to take ownership of the earth, or to conquer the earth, or to take it back. And, uh, and what John notices is that, gosh, there's nobody able or capable or worthy is the word that's used to take the scroll and to loose the seals. It's nobody. There's nobody capable or found worthy enough to take the scroll and to get things going. And what ends up happening is one of the elders in about verse 3 it says this, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found able to open the scroll or look at it. In verse 4, John says, I began to weep loudly, uh, sob convulsively, literally was what the Greek says, because no one was found worthy to open a scroll or look look into it. Uh, Verse 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Don't weep anymore. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So again, there's that word, conquered. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. So in this case, it's it's, it's a lion that's found conquering. Again, you jump forward to Revelation chapter 12, that which conquers is not a lion, it's a lamb. So again, you have, you have uh, various metaphors that are basically being used here to convey very profound truth. And he goes on to say this. He says he's conquered so that he can uh, open the scroll and loose its seven seals. In verse 6, uh, then it says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Uh, so here's what I see. John is now anxious to kind of get this thing going. He's looking forward to finding out, to discovering who the lion of the tribe of Judah is that has conquered. So he's excited to look for the lion who's conquered. And here's what he does. He says as he's looking around to look for this lion who's conquered, he says this in the middle part of verse 6. He said, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So here's what you got to understand. This language that takes place in chapter 12 is all uh, written with the assumption that you're already aware, you're already familiar with chapter 5. You're already familiar with the language, you've already been familiar with the word conquering, you've already been familiar with the concept of the lamb that's been slain. And what John's trying to say uh, in chapter 12 is that the way that the saints conquered the effects of the dragon, conquered the impact of the devil, is by the lamb that was slain. He provides the basis by which we conquer. This is really important for you to understand because here's the reality is that we do live in a battlefield in which we are in many ways prisoners of war. We don't have power in ourselves to fight. We don't have the abilities to fight and the point that he, I think he's trying to convey here is that we basically will stand and we will find ourselves vulnerable in the hands of the enemy. And Jesus is the one that provides the means to set us free. I want you to take a look at the next slide. Um, basically, I want to break it down into between those who are believers and those who are non-believers. Uh, non-believers, the very fact that they deny Jesus as God or as Lord overall, basically not only proves but also perpetuates uh, the darkness that exists in their souls. 
There is a darkness that's there. And the fact of denial of Christ just basically perpetuates that and proves the fact it's sort of this self-denial. It's the mentality of, I don't believe in it, therefore it just can't be there. But again, it's sort of a self-proving type of a claim that to, to, to not believe that Christ is the conqueror just proves that the enemy's very good at deceiving other people. But it goes further because believers are also just as guilty. And here's what ends up happening. Here's what the dragon tries to do. For non-believers, he blinds them. Paul uses the word, uh, the phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, in their case, the God of this world, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the truth. That's his whole point. Now, if you're a Christian, your eyes aren't blinded like that anymore. Your eyes are opened. You see Jesus. You understand the salvation. But that doesn't mean that you're free from the effects or the impact of the dragon. That's why I've said this all along since the very beginning. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're free from demonic oppression or demonic acts, right? This is why Christians sometimes can be some of the most bitter people. Uh, I mean, I think if your bitterness never gets dealt with, the reality is, is maybe you're not a Christian, but if you are a Christian and you have bitterness, there's a battle that's going on. You know there's something wrong that needs to be made right and dealt with. And the reality is Satan blinds our eyes, or, or tries to tempt us, I should say, not blind us, but he tries to tempt us to hold on to certain sins uh, because what he's really trying to do, he's either trying to obscure our vision of Christ or he's trying to distract us from Christ. And when he does this, what he oftentimes accomplishes in the Christian is either sinful proclivities, sinful behaviors, that when we sin, when we do bad things, when we do evil deeds, you know, whatever it is, you can fill in the blank, you guys are familiar with those things, all right? Whatever it is, the sum effect of that is you don't want to hang out with other Christians. You don't want to go to Bible studies, you don't want to go to prayer meetings, you don't want to sit down with a handful of, you know, five guys, you know, at a, at a prayer meeting and just share your soul because there's darkness. You feel bad. You feel evil. You feel accused, which is exactly what the dragon does. He accuses you. So sinful behavior oftentimes leads to a sort of a marginalization where you remove yourself from the rest of the body. And that's exactly what Satan tries to do, to remove us, to get us away, because now we're rendered ineffective. Now we're rendered useless for the kingdom. We're not pushing back the darkness. We're just sort of sitting there, tied up. We don't know what to do. We're, we're just, we're stopped. We're stopped in our tracks. We're not moving forward. We're not advancing, not pushing back darkness. We're just sort of, in a sense, sitting in the darkness. Even though the light of Christ is shining upon our hearts, we're just sitting there paralyzed because of sin. We feel bad. The second way is I think one of the things that the enemy tries to do is he figures for some people it's like I can't get them to sin because they have an impeccable uh, temperament. They have an ability to just resist evil. They're really good. They don't sin that much. They don't go, their, their temptation is not going out and getting drunk. They're never tempted to take hits off of a bong or to smoke weed. That's not their temptation. Their temptation is not to go to porn, not to visit bad sites or cheat on their spouse. That's not their temptation. Their temptation is to read the Bible a lot, to listen to Bible studies a lot, and then afterwards, Satan whispers in their ears little things like this, you're amazing, you're a really good scholar, you're super smart, 
You know it all, man. You should like start a discernment ministry. You should start some sort of like ministry telling everybody because you're so stinking smart. And you start believing that. You're like, yeah, you're right. And everybody else is a loser. It's arrogance. That's arrogance. That's pride. That pride is exactly what Satan wants to get you into as well. Because that's more of a dragon-like characteristic than a lamb-like characteristic. See what I'm saying? Both are evil. One is visibly evil because it's sinful. It's sinful activity, sinful things that you can point to and say, ah, no doubt, no brainer, that's bad. Others don't seem evil because it's clothed clothed and packaged in righteousness. He looks really good. You look really smart. You look really disciplined in your Christian walk. We just call it religious morality. But along with that sometimes can come a really horrific type of a pride and legalism and criticalness and a tendency to always judge everybody else that doesn't live up to your particular type of standards or does not have the same type of discipline that you have or doesn't know the Bible the way that you know the Bible or doesn't care about theology or any other types of uh, service towards God the way that you do. And therefore, you're just prideful. You're just prideful. It's just as bad is being extremely sinful. Look, both the prodigal son and the prodigal son's brother were both alienated from dad. They both needed redemption. In fact, the story of the prodigal son, this is a total tangent, but it's a freebie. I'll give it to you for free. Is that it's really not about the prodigal son. He came back and was made right. The real issue in that story, if you read it again, it's about the older bro who misses out on the celebration of the father because he's arrogant, he's sinful, and he's a Pharisee. Are you a Pharisee? Or are you the prodigal son? The remedy is the same. Jesus is the dragon slayer. The dragon uses the world, the flesh, and the devil to deceive us. They work in concert to drive us away from Christ or to drive us into despair. Does that make sense? Here's what we're going to do. There's two things that I want you to notice, um, and we'll just kind of wrap this up, spend some time worshiping. The first thing is this, is I want you to notice with regard to Jesus being the first and foremost means or the solution to uh, demonic activity, is that Jesus desires, Jesus actually desires to set you free. I want you to listen to the story. It's actually found in John chapter 8, verse 23. Uh, here's what Jesus, uh, the story's about. Um, Jesus oftentimes had these uh, dialogue Dialogues with uh, the religious leaders. In this particular case, I think the setting is, it just describes them as Jews. So there's no doubt there's religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees in the setting, but there's also uh, just uh, Jews, people that were God-fearing men, who women who loved God and were trying to understand God's ways. And so both of these are in this audience here. In verse uh, 23 of chapter 8 of the book of John says this, and he said to him, now you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you repent and, uh, added, unless you believe, you know, he's also implying repent, he says, and believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus' whole point is that, listen, you guys got to understand that you're trapped, you're bound, and this being bound is, is, is attributed to the dragon. And, and you'll, this will become very, very crystal clear in just a moment. Here's what he goes on to say in verse 28. He says, so Jesus said to him, 
When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And he was saying these things. Many believed in him. So check this out. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want to know how I'll set you free? I'll be like a lamb that will be slain. It's an echo. It's an echo of Revelation chapter 12. It's an echo of Revelation chapter 5. He's basically saying, I will be lifted up on the cross. I will die. I will die. I will be like a lamb that will be slain before all of the world. And that will be the means, the mediator by which I will remove darkness and I will take away the shackles and I will set you free. His whole point is that outside of me or apart from me, there is no freedom. Outside of me or apart from me, there's nothing but shackles. There might be heavy shackles, but there might be also some lightweight shackles. But nonetheless, whether it's heavy shackles or light shackles, they're all shackles. Is that making clear? And he goes on and makes the point, and he says this in about verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus' whole point is not just simply if you know a certain creed, everything will be good. The truth that he's talking about here is embodied by a person. Don't miss this. Evangelicalism loves to reduce things down to just simple profession of statements. It's not just simply a profession of a statement. Yes, there are certain doctrinal truths we ought to know, we ought to understand, we ought to comprehend. But unless the doctrinal truths lead us to Jesus, the person, then we've missed it. Let me finish this up here. And he goes on, and he says this. And they answered him, and they're a little bit confused, because Jesus is like, listen, if you trust me, believe me, I'll set you free. They're a little bit confused, because they're like, free? I didn't know we were in shackles. You see, that, that's the logic that's going on here. And they go on, they say, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you say we'll become free? Jesus answered, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Listen carefully. Jesus' whole point, even though these guys are confused, they're like, we don't get it. You know, we're Abraham's sons. We're God's people. We're God's, you know, special, unique, privileged people. We have the word of God, man. We're scholars. We understand doctrinal truths. We get it. We get religion. We get the concept of God. Jesus, and they're like, how are we bound? Jesus is like, you, you don't get it. You don't get it. You think you get it, but you don't get it. Because in reality, you're all slaves. And the reason why you're slaves is sin, because if you commit sin, then you are now a slave to that sin. You serve that sin. You are in shackles to that sin, to that false God, to that false concept about God, to even false religion, even to ego. You are bound and how great is the darkness that comes along with the shackles. That's his point. And he goes on, he said in verse 33, and he answered him, uh, we are the offspring of Abraham. And jump on down about verse 34. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I say that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. So check this out. They're basically saying, look, our father's Abraham. And Jesus very subtly is saying, he's not your father. 
You think he's your father. You're deceived. You are actually deceived. You think Abraham's your father. You think God is your father, but he's not your father. And the reason why he's not your father is because you're not listening to me. You're not coming to me. You're not trusting me. You're not loving me. And his whole point is to basically say, is that if you love the Father, if you love God's word, then you would love God's servant. You would love God's son. I've come as God's son. I am God's son. Come in the flesh. And if you loved me, if you loved God, you would love me. You would accept me. You would trust me. And Jesus' whole point is that by coming to me, I will unshackle you from your chains, and I will set you free, and I will stop the darkness. And I will shatter it and get rid of it and drive it back. Let me say this. Oftentimes, angry preachers and angry Christians love taking verses like this and using it in sort of a tribalistic type, imperialistic, Christian imperialistic type way to basically try to say, look, we're in the light. You guys are in the darkness. You will go to hell. And God's really, really angry at you. I don't see that's what's happening in this text at all. But quite frankly, what I do see is the opposite. I see Jesus basically pleading with a group of people saying, listen, you guys are all in bondage. You guys are all enslaved to sin. I love you. I desire for you to be free. It's exactly what we're talking about. Jesus desires to set you free. And the way to be free is to come to Jesus, to trust in Jesus This is where this gets oftentimes very confusing to some. Because again, we live in a very pluralistic society, culture, religiously and whatnot. We like to say things like, well, aren't there many paths to God? Can't there be other ways? Let me, here's here's what I want to basically try to say. What I think I'm understanding from the text here is the answer to that is no, there are not other ways. Let me try the best as I can to try to explain why. The darkness... The deception goes so deep into our world, into the world, into our flesh, who we are, physical being, physical body, into the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are working together in regular concert to drive us away from God, either by despair or to keep us far away from God by self-righteousness. Either way, Satan doesn't really matter. If he can keep you self-righteous, he'll keep feeding you Bible studies. If he can keep you in sin, he'll just keep tossing stuff in front of you. He'll keep porn sites popping up in front of you. It doesn't matter. He doesn't really care. As long as it keeps you in despair, as long as it keeps you away from God, he doesn't really care. He'll keep feeding you. He'll keep baiting the hook. You'll keep biting the hook, and you'll keep constantly falling. Jesus' whole point is I've come into the world to set you free. And he desires to set us free. It's his heart to set us free. So, why is it that other things cannot help us? So somebody might say, well, I don't need Jesus to do this. I can do this myself. I can do this myself. I can help myself. I can fight back the darkness in the world. I can fight back darkness in my flesh. And I'm not even sure if the devil even exists. I can do this on my own. Here's what I want to say. You can't. That's how deceived we are. We think we can, but we can't doesn't matter you're like even well what if i have enough power people have known this for years power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely you've heard that it's absolutely true i mean we think if i have power 
I have the ability to conquer darkness. I have the ability to push back evil. I have the ability to stop wickedness in the world and in my flesh and any type of spiritual demonic type realm. You can't. The world, our body, ourselves, we are deceived. You're like, well, okay, what if I have enough money? What if I have enough money? If I have enough money, can't I somehow, uh, you know, have and use money as a means to push back darkness in the world, in my flesh, in the devil? No, you can't. Because here's the deal. You will end up having this love affair with money. You will love money. Money will be the thing you love. It will be the thing that you value above and beyond all other things. We all know the love of money is the root of all evil. Loving money is a root of all evil. You're like, okay, well, what about knowledge? What if I have enough knowledge? Can I have enough knowledge? Can I push back darkness in the world, in the flesh, by having enough knowledge? You're wrong again, respectfully. Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's what I'm trying to say. If I can try to put it best to you this way. Every other device that we somehow can think we can hope on or that offers promises to us to push back darkness, to set us free from wickedness, to remove evil out of our life, out of the world, out of our flesh, out of our existence. Every other device that we look to, trust in, that's not Jesus, is a double agent. What's that? A double agent, meaning it may pose to look like it's working for you, but it's actually working for Satan. It's tainted. Okay? How many download, well, we lose electricity? Check, check, check. Okay. I want you to think of it this way. We're going to keep going. I want you to think of it this way. How many of you guys download stuff from like peer-to-peer sites? All right, be honest. Still love you. Peer-to-peer? Pirate stuff? All right, nobody wants to raise their hand. Okay, I know you do. But let's just, let's just assume for a second here. All right, people are always sketchy of this. Because let's just say you, you, you get some sort of software or something that has some sort of virus on it. You think, okay, I'll download this movie because I really want to watch this movie. And this movie will you know, provide me some sense of joy and happiness. And you download it, and it ends up becoming a virus on your computer and ruining everything. That's what I want to say. Everything in this world that promises us the ability of fighting darkness, pushing back evil, helping us out, setting us free, promising us joy, promising us life, is either tainted with a virus, is a double agent, or just simply can never fulfill the promises it gives. Jesus knows this. And he's just like, you got to understand, everything in this world is tainted. This is how deep and dark evil permeates everything. It's all pervasive. It's everywhere. It's universal. Even deepest, most in your heart. So what I hope you hear today is Jesus basically saying is this. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So why is Jesus unique? Because he's the only one that has never been seduced by the dragon. You understand that? He's the perfect 
spotless, son of God, son of man, who's come into our world. He's never been seduced. He's never eaten or taken a bite out of Satan's fruit. He's never sinned. He's never fallen prey. He's not a double agent. He's working for God. He is God as God. Come into the world to seek and save those who have offended God. To save and to set free. Dealing with sin. Setting us free from the shackles of our lives. While every other promise fails, Jesus delivers. This is why Jesus makes the claim. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I hope what you hear in that is the desire of God to set you free. Okay? I hope you hear that. Second thing I want you to notice, we'll jump into this, is God's design. God designs the means by which to set us free. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, if you were here last week at our Easter service, actually preached from this, says this, uh, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. His whole point that Paul is basically trying to make is that there is a righteousness that God delivers. God gives a foreign righteousness. In other words, if we look at our lives and we're like, ah, I can be made right, I can push back evil, push back darkness, be made right with God by working really hard, by striving really hard, by doing things for God, reading my Bible a lot, going to a good Bible teaching church, getting involved in the Bible teaching church, memorizing scripture, whatever type of religious activity you want to think of, the bottom line is this, is that that is not what makes you right with God. What Paul's trying to say is this, is that quite the opposite those things can make us right with God. They're, they're not intended to make us right with God. Because like I said, even the best of the best, when Jesus was talking to this group of people in John's book, first and foremost, check this out, listen to who Jesus was talking to. He wasn't talking to atheists, pimps, and prostitutes. He was talking to the religious leadership of the day. He was talking to Bible scholars. He was talking to people that preach for a living. They get paychecks to preach. That's what their job was, was to memorize the scripture, to interpret the scripture, to preach the scripture, to live the scripture. And he's like, listen, how great is the darkness in you? These weren't evil doers. These were righteous people in the eyes of the world. And what Paul is basically saying, there's a righteousness that God gives to us that's independent from us doesn't come from in here it's actually foreign it's gifted to us and the way that God gifts this to us is through Jesus and here's what he says this is why Jesus comes why Jesus lived why he was handed over to die and why he was raised to life to make us right with God or to justify us with God all right I want to look at two kind of big theological words I'm going to try to break them down for you and I'll tell you why I'm going to throw out these two big words uh, for you uh, when I'm done here. So the first big theological word is justification. I'm going to read what J.I. Packer has to say. I think it's a great definition. Justification is a judicial act of God pardoning sinners, wicked and ungodly persons, uh, accepting them as just and so putting permanently right their previously estranged relationship with himself. This justifying sentence is God's gift of righteousness. His bestowal of a status of acceptance for Jesus' sake. Let me try to help you understand what that means. Is it goes like this. If you are standing before God, all that we have to offer God is what Old Testament passages would say, our filthy rags, our righteousness, our good deeds, 
really amount to nothing more than use menstrual, menstrual cloths to God. That's what they are. That's literally what the Hebrew says. All right? That's all that we have to offer God. And so the reality is, is if I'm going to be made right before God, I need a foreign righteousness gifted to me. Because I can't conjure it up. I can't buy it. I don't have enough money to buy it. And even if I did have money to buy it, I'll fall in love with the money and just simply use the money as my savior. And I'll look to that. And that will be the root of all evil anyhow. That make sense? This is how all pervasive the human heart is, how all pervasive evil is in the world, how all pervasive Satan is in his evil deceptions in everything. You're like, gosh, it's pretty bleak today. I know. I know. It's pretty bad. But how great a savior we have to conquer the darkness is really what I want you to see. Okay? So, Paul's saying, Jesus gifts a right standing for you before God. Free gift. What do you do with the gift? Just receive it. Receive it. It's a right standing. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, meaning he was always righteous, always made the right decisions, never lost his temper unless there were occasions where he needed to, and it was righteous where he whips out whips and start whipping people and I would never suggest you do that because it's probably always be done out of a righteous, an, an unrighteous attitude. Jesus can do it in a righteous attitude. Everything he did in his life was always pleasing to the Father. Everything. Uh, and then Jesus not only lived the life we should have lived, but he also died the death we should have died. Meaning, we deserve penalty for our sinfulness and our giving into sinfulness and loving sinful things. Passionately loving sinful things. That's the way the Bible describes our perennial love affair with the things of this world. We are passionately in love with the things of this world. Salvation, here's what salvation is. God opens our eyes to see how foolish it is to love something of small significance. And in a moment, our eyes are open, we realize, ah, I've been loving this thing my whole life when God has been pursuing me this whole time. I want to give everything to him. That's what salvation is. And what he does here is he gives us a right standing before God. He lives the life we should live. He died the death we should have died. And he rose again from the dead as an evidence, a final proof, evidencing the fact that we are made right with God. All foreign of anything you or I have ever done, can ever do, or ever will do. All right, got that? You guys are so convincing. You, you guys get that? Okay, yeah, can move on. All right, next one is this. Uh, sanctification, another big word. Sanctification, again, I'll, I'll quote from J.I. Packer. He says this. In sanctification, the Holy Spirit works in you uh, to will and to act according to God's purpose. What he does is prompt you to work out your salvation. Uh, that is to express it in action by fulfilling these new desires. Basically, what sanctification is, is we take the life that is now in us, and we begin to live according to it, which means like this. Areas in my life that maybe I used to steal. Paul will work it out in his own epistles. He'll say like this. Areas where you guys used to steal, don't steal anymore. And said, why don't you give away your goods? Give away your goods. Areas where you used to be bitter with people, forgive them and love them. Areas where people, you know, in the past would rub you the wrong way, you want to go punch them? Why don't you go bake them some muffins and go serve them? Go take good care of them. That, that's, that's living out your righteousness or sanctification you are living according to the new nature of God in you now 
the reason why this is important, the reason why I want to make a distinguishing uh, point between sanctification and justification is this. Um, I have found oftentimes in conversations and counseling appointments with countless people that Christians oftentimes get these two confused. And I'll show you exactly how this works. Um, I'll talk with somebody, somebody that even just comes to my, my mind right now as I was talking to them one time, and I'm like, how are you feeling right now in your Christian walk? They're like, I feel horrible. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be around Christians. I ask them why. Because I, I've, I've just been getting drunk. I feel really bad about it. I, I feel like I can't even go to church. Uh, I've been surfing porn on the internet. I don't want to be doing that anymore. I feel super bad. And as soon as I'm able to clean that crap out of my life, I'll go back to church. I said, the problem is, is that you are looking to your sanctification as the means by which you're right with God. And the enemy is using that as a stronghold in your life to drive you away in despair from God. You are right with God. You are made righteous with God simply because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. To prove this, I want to read you one other verse. Here's what it says. I think it's up here. Take a look at the next one. Love this verse. Memorize this verse. Quote this verse. It's awesome. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what this means? Even when you were, it all goes, I'll keep reading. Here's what it says. Since therefore, I get excited. Uh, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled to him. Shall we be saved in this life? More than that, we also rejoice. Paul's just getting excited. In God, through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's what Paul's saying. You want to know when you were made right with God? You want to know when you, in your relationship with God, were actually made right, declared righteous, viewed by God as pure, justified, clean, right, righteous? It was not when you were reading your Bible a lot. Not in those moments when you're praying a lot. Not when those moments when you were living moralistically pure, but quite to the opposite. When you were in the deepest, darkest, most depths of sinfulness or self-righteousness. He says it was in that moment that Christ died and made you right with God. What's Paul saying? This is scandalous. How can you say this? How can you say that you're right with God even still in sin? Because Jesus' blood, the lamb that was slain, is what conquered the dragon. Not your righteousness, not your actions, not your activities, not your sanctification. Well, where does sanctification come in? Sanctification comes in after you recognize what Christ has done for you. Now you live for God because you love God. If you misunderstand this, if this is confusing to you, if you confuse these two concepts, you will constantly have footholds in your life where the dragon will keep dragging you down, keep pulling you down, keep you isolated, keep you living an autonomous lifestyle, just like the dragon. He's autonomous. He will keep you marginalized. He will keep you separated from the rest of the flock, from the rest of the body, 
because he will always keep you locked in to this mentality of performance. When I feel like I'm close to God, then I'll go hang out with Christians. When I feel like I'm reading my Bible a lot, then I'll go hang out with believers. When I, the, see what I'm saying? You're basing your right relationship, your right standing with God based upon what you do. And what I'm trying to say, that is all doctrine from the devil. When the true gospel that Paul's trying to convey, which Jesus says, is simply this. He whom the Son sets free implies desire. He loves to set people free. Are free indeed. I hope you know that. So what do we do with all this? Let me say this. If you're not a Christian, I hope you're convinced that there are no other forces in this world that can help battle, push back, fight against the darkness. They're all double agents. They're all broken. They may give promises, but their promises can never deliver. Only Christ can deliver because only Christ is free from any sinful proclivities. Only Christ is pure. Only Christ is from God. Only Christ can deliver because he is the one who's standing on the rock to set free. That's it. It's the only one. Everything else is tainted, broken, has a virus, is a double agent. What you need to do, if you want to be set free, you got to come to Jesus. You got to come to Jesus. You got to trust him. You got to call upon him. Ask him to wash you, to cleanse you. The Bible says to repent, to turn from any sinful activities, to trust in Christ. It just simply means to come to him and, 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 and convey your trust upon him alone. So if you're a Christian and you're like, you got demonic activity going on in your life, even though it might be blatant demonic or common demonic, you're like, how do I deal with it? It's the same thing. I, I deal with this all the time in counseling sessions. One of the very first things I ask people, especially if, you know, I've had people come to me and they're like, listen, I'm having uh, bad dreams, night terrors. I feel like I'm constantly accused by the dragon. I always ask them the same question. And I say, you got to be honest with me. You have to tell me the truth. Are there any sinful activities right now, currently in your life that you're doing? Or is there anything in your past, maybe even before, you know, years ago that you, that you used to do that you still live with and it's an offense to you? Maybe it was a girlfriend that you abused in a horrific way and you've just never dealt with that as a Christian. Is there anything in your life that you need to confess to God right now? Let me put it this way. Imagine windows in a house or doors in a house. If these doors and windows are a means and a way by which the dragon comes in, wouldn't you want to shut every one of them? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm simply saying. That's what repentance does. Repentance basically says, God, I've been harboring bitterness. I have malice in my heart. I've been stealing things. I have this insatiable lust and passion for money. Whatever it is. I get drunk all the time. Whatever. I mean, what, I surf porn. Whatever. I mean, you can fill in the blanks. The first thing I got to tell you is this. You got to repent from sin. Those are doors and windows by which the dragon comes in. And really what you're doing is you're just looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I commit to you my heart. I come to you. Cleanse me. Wash me. Forgive me. And this is how 
This is how you conquer. This is how they conquered through the blood of the Lamb. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to respond right now to this great king. This is why Paul gets really Pentecostal halfway through that verse. He's like, we rejoice because Christ has conquered. This is why in Revelation chapter 12 it says, when they realized the lamb conquered, they sing loudly. We love Jesus because Jesus has initiated with us the removal of our shackles, the removal of our things that we find ourselves in bondage to. Jesus has initiated this amazing step in relationship with us. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I hope you know that freedom. I hope that as a church, we collectively know that freedom so that we can push back the darkness. But you have to understand, it comes first and foremost by you confessing the darkness that lurks in your own heart. Those areas of divisiveness, those areas of criticalness, those areas of self-righteousness, those areas of whatever it is, you first deal with those. And by dealing with those and asking God to cleanse you and wash you from those things, by confessing those things, by repenting of those things, you know what you're doing? You are engaging in warfare, pushing back the darkness and allowing the light to shine. That's how it works, guys. I, I wish there was an easier way to deal with this, but it's not. The Christian walk is not easy. The gospel is not just, oh, so I can get saved. The gospel is the, is the meal that we feast on, all of us, every day. The gospel is what leads into everything Paul writes about in, in every epistle that Paul writes about. It's the gospel that helps us to live. It's the gospel that helps us to overcome bitterness that helps us to overcome sinful proclivities that helps us to put to death to mortify the deeds of the flesh it's the gospel not just to get saved but to live i hope you know jesus i hope you love jesus i hope you call upon him i hope you see him as strong and as mighty to save i'm going to pray we'll sing we'll confess we have communion I encourage you to partake of communion to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross, to remember that all victory, any victory that you partake in, cost Jesus his life. When you partake of communion, let that hit you. Your freedom was secured, as Jesus said, by the Son of Man being lifted up. He will draw all men to himself. Your freedom. It's free. But extremely costly. Jesus literally felt your hell to set you free. That's how deep the Father's love is for you. Please see today that there's darkness. You can't fight it yourself. Every attempt self-deception only Jesus can deliver we're going to pray we'll sing repent we'll give our tithes and our offerings joyfully to God partake of communion we'll worship Jesus thank you for the cross thank you Lord God for what you've done for us we love you God I pray that you take all this 
theological content, Bible truth. And Lord, let it settle upon our hearts that melts our hearts, that causes us to have great, deep affection for you, to sing to you, to love you, to praise you, to honor you, to give joyfully to you of our tithes and offerings, to partake of communion with a sense of reverence and awe. We love you, Lord.